Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, part two of Lost in Translation. This series titled Lost in Translation deals with many of the concepts and history related to Joseph Smith's translation of the Book of Mormon. But before I get to tonight's podcast, I wanted to personally thank all of my listeners who voted for Radio Free Mormon for Best Podcast in the most recent Brody Awards. Radio Free Mormon has been broadcasting behind enemy lines since the end of 2016, so it's been over three years now that this program has been on the air. In the first year of its production, Radio Free Mormon won the Brody Award for Best New Podcast of 2017. In 2018, it won the award for Best Podcast as well as for Best Podcast of a specific episode, that episode being General Conference Death March. Most recently, the Brody Awards held its nominations for Mormon-related podcasts for 2019, and I am pleased to announce that Radio Free Mormon once again won the Brody Award for Best Podcast. On top of that, Radio Free Mormon won the Brody Award for Most Insightful Commentary on the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for the podcast titled President Nelson Jumps the Shark. In that particular category, I was actually competing against myself because I had been nominated twice. So I was put in the position of actually having to run against myself. I was nominated for President Nelson Jumps the Shark as well as for the multi-part series that I did with Bill Reel regarding Elder and Sister Renland and their devotional presentation likening the LDS Church to a dilapidated dinghy and why it was that we as members of the church should not abandon ship when we see that the dinghy we have been rescued in contains nothing but stale crackers and water to eat and drink and is captained by an old crusty fisherman who is decidedly hard of hearing. As it turned out, Radio Free Mormon actually won first and second place. As I say, first place went to President Nelson Jumps the Shark and the second place went to the Renlund's devotional about the dilapidated dinghy. Once again, thank you to all of my listeners, not only for nominating me for these categories, but also for voting for me and winning for me once again the coveted Brody Awards for 2019 in these categories. Now, getting to tonight's podcast on Lost in Translation, I don't want to reiterate and duplicate all the ground that I covered in the first part of this podcast. But in the first part of this podcast, I did talk numerous times and make reference to the LDS Church's essay on the Book of Mormon Translation. During that podcast, I think I may have incorrectly stated that this essay went up in 2015. If so, I want to correct the record and state that it actually went up on the Church's website in 2013. It was the Enzyme magazine featuring a photo op of the Seer Stone that was published in 2015. But several times in referencing that essay, I said that the church has now abandoned its position, that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon as we have it today using the Urim and Thummim, by which is usually meant the stones set in the silver bows and fastened to a breastplate as described by Joseph Smith in his History of the Church. Now the official position of the church has come to align with the actual historic evidence and the testimony of witnesses that Joseph Smith used a different method altogether. It was actually using his brown egg-shaped chocolate-colored seer stone placed in the bottom of a hat and then Joseph Smith placing his face over the hat and translating using that method. What I did not get to was actually quoting from the essay to that effect. And I want to do that now just to make sure the record is clear that that is indeed the official position of the church on this subject. 
This from The Church's Essay. Joseph Smith and his scribes wrote of two instruments used in translating the Book of Mormon. According to witnesses of the translation, when Joseph looked into the instruments, the words of Scripture appeared in English. One instrument, called in the Book of Mormon the Interpreters, is better known to Latter-day Saints today as the Urim and Thummim. Joseph found the interpreters buried in the hill with the plates. Those who saw the interpreters described them as a clear pair of stones bound together with a metal rim. The Book of Mormon referred to this instrument, together with its breastplate, as a device kept and preserved by the hand of the Lord and handed down from generation to generation for the purpose of interpreting languages. Now you will notice that the essay there fudges the facts a little bit. The interpreters were actually prepared for use in translating the Book of Mormon itself, not for the general rubric of just translating ancient languages. Apparently they wish to make this more general because it helps to explain why the Urim and Thummim was not actually used in translating the Book of Mormon. In last week's episode, I mentioned that the title Urim and Thummim was a title that was not originally attributed to the seer stone, but later over time it came to be associated with the seer stone in an attempt to biblicize the folk magic elements of Book of Mormon origins. Last night, I was reading again through Terrell Givens' recent book, The Pearl of Greatest Price, in which he discusses this subject as well, and he acknowledges and accounts for this evidence by stating that Urim and Thummim is what Joseph Smith came to call the seer stones. In other words, Terrell Givens also acknowledges the fact that this is a title that came to be applied to the seer stones over the course of time, and he mentions that it was, in fact, William W. Phelps or W. W. Phelps who first used this appellation, Urim and Thummim, to describe the seer stones in writing, and that was in 1833. So it is not until 1833, four years after Joseph Smith uses the seer stone to translate the Book of Mormon, that the first time in print, the title Urim and Thummim is used to describe the seer stones, and that honor goes to none other than William W. Phelps. The essay goes on. The other instrument, which Joseph Smith discovered in the ground years before he retrieved the gold plates, was a small oval stone or seer stone. As a young man during the 1820s, Joseph Smith, like others in his day, used a seer stone to look for lost objects and buried treasure. As Joseph grew to understand his prophetic calling, he learned that he could use this stone for the higher purpose of translating scripture. Apparently, for convenience, Joseph often translated with the single seer stone rather than the two stones bound together to form the interpreters. As we have seen, Joseph Smith did often use his seer stone. In fact, he used it for all the translation of everything we have today in the Book of Mormon, and he used it during his translation of the 116 pages as well. We covered that in the last episode. These two instruments going on with the essay, these two instruments, the interpreters and the seer stone, as if they're actually different, were apparently interchangeable and worked in much the same way, such that in the course of time, Joseph Smith and his associates often used the term Urim and Thummim to refer to the single stone as well as the interpreters. See the confusion here? Urim and Thummim comes to be used as an appellation for the seer stone, but they still want to keep alive the idea that there were interpreters and that Urim and Thummim was a name that described the interpreters as well. Actually, I think an analysis of the historical record lends credence to the idea that these are all one and the same. Whatever the terms are used to describe them, whether it's Urim and Thummim, whether it's interpreters, it's all being used to describe Joseph Smith's seer stone that he used to translate the Book of Mormon. In ancient times, Israelite priests used the Urim and Thummim to assist in receiving divine communications. We covered that in the last episode as well. Although commentators differ on the nature of the instrument, 
Several ancient sources state that the instrument involves stones that lit up or were divinely illumined. Okay, so they're trying to go to the Old Testament and commentators on the Old Testament to get out the fact that maybe the Shurim and Thummim that was used by Aaron the high priest was divinely illumined in order to make it sound more like the method that Joseph Smith used with the seer stone. What they're not going to mention is that the majority of commentators on this issue tend to believe that the Urim and Thummim were lots or dice that were cast in order to divine God's will and that they did not glow in the dark and were not divinely illumined. Anyway, going on, Latter-day Saints later understood the term Urim and Thummim to refer exclusively to the interpreters. Well, that's right. Latter-day Saints did later understand that the term Urim and Thummim referred exclusively to the interpreters. That's because of the way it was used in church periodicals and in church writings about church history. It was not the fault, repeat, not the fault of church artists for this commonly held misunderstanding among the Latter-day Saints as to the method of Book of Mormon translation, even though the church has from time to time tried to lay the blame for that misunderstanding at the feet of the artists. Joseph Smith and others, however, seem to have understood the term more as a descriptive category of instruments for obtaining divine revelations and less as the name of a specific instrument. So there they're trying to get around the problem that Urim and Thummim is what was used later to describe the seer stone. Instead of it being a descriptor of an actual instrument, it's more of a category now. The essay goes on. Some people have balked at this claim of physical instruments used in the divine translation process. Well, actually, yes, a lot of people have probably balked at the claim. The problem has been that more and more recently, Latter-day Saints themselves, who have been taught growing up in the church for decades, that actually it was a Urim and Thummim that was used to translate the Book of Mormon, are now being told and finding out through the internet and now officially through this essay on the church's own website that Joseph Smith used his own personal seer stone to translate the gold plates. And the way he did it was by putting it into a hat and then covering the hat with his face in order to accomplish the dictation. It is these Latter-day Saints who have found out the real method of translating the Book of Mormon who are the ones who have balked at the method of translation. Some people have balked, the essay says, some people have balked at this claim of physical instruments used in the divine translation process, but such aids to facilitate the communication of God's power and inspiration are consistent with accounts in scripture. In addition to the Urim and Thummim, the Bible mentions other physical instruments used to access God's power. Now here this is interesting because what this essay is going to do is actually further this initial impulse to biblicize the folk magic elements, the folk magic process of using a seer stone to translate the Book of Mormon and further biblicize it and place it and try to situate it within a biblical context. Going on with the essay, in addition to the Urim and Thummim, the Bible mentions other physical instruments used to access God's power. Well, they have to say God's power as opposed to God's translation because really there's not a whole lot in the Old Testament or the New Testament for that matter that talks about using physical instruments for translating records by the gift and power of God. But here are the examples that they give. The rod of Aaron. Ah, the rod of Aaron. Well, that's like Oliver's rod, isn't it? They're not going to actually make that connection here. But the rod of Aaron, a brass serpent, holy anointing oils, the Ark of the Covenant, and even dirt from the ground mixed with saliva to heal the eyes of a blind man. 
So once again, we see an attempt by the church to try and situate Joseph Smith's use of the seer stone in a biblical context, even though those examples have little to nothing to do with translating by a physical object, but only physical objects used to show God's power. The essay goes on now with their section titled, The Mechanics of Translation. Well, this should be interesting. In the preface to the 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith wrote, I would inform you that I translated the book by the gift and power of God. When pressed for specifics about the process of translation, Joseph repeated on several occasions that it had been done by the gift and power of God, and once added, it was not intended to tell the world all the particulars of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. Well, that was in October of 1831. You remember we covered that in the last episode. The essay goes on, Nevertheless, the scribes and others who observed the translation left numerous accounts that give insight into the process. So here they're going to actually deal with some witness statements. Some accounts indicate that Joseph studied the characters on the plates. Really? Well, they don't actually cite to any of those accounts, interestingly enough. They go on. Most of the accounts speak of Joseph's use of the Urim and Thummim, either the interpreters or the seer stone. So they say most of the accounts speak of his use of the Urim and Thummim, which can mean the seer stone. And many accounts refer to his use of a single stone. Well, there's probably a reason for that. According to these accounts, Joseph placed either the interpreters or the seer stone in a hat, pressed his face into the hat to block out extraneous light, and read aloud the English words that appeared on the instrument. The process, as described, brings to mind a passage from the Book of Mormon that speaks of God preparing a stone, which shall shine forth in darkness unto light. We'll talk about that particular passage in a subsequent part of this podcast. But indeed, the Book of Mormon does actually talk about the process that was used in translating the Book of Mormon being a stone which shall shine forth in darkness unto light. It is a passage from the Book of Alma that made absolutely no sense to me whatsoever growing up in the church until I found out that this was really the way that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon. He didn't do it by looking at the plates. He didn't do it by looking through some spectacles at the plates. Instead, he did it by placing his stone, his seer stone, his peep stone, into a hat. You see, when Hiram Page has a stone that he receives revelations, it's a peep stone. But when Joseph Smith has a stone that he uses to receive revelations, well, that's a seer stone. My stone is a seer stone. Your stone is a peep stone. That seems to be the way the terminology runs. But when I found out that Joseph Smith used a seer stone in a hat to translate the Book of Mormon, all of a sudden I was able to see that this passage in the Book of Alma did seem to reflect exactly that usage. It was a stone which, according to witnesses, did shine forth in darkness unto light, in the darkness of the hat, unto the light that was cast in some way from the stone. And in that light, Joseph Smith received the translation of the Book of Mormon. The essay goes on, the scribes who assisted with the translation unquestionably believed that Joseph translated by divine power. Joseph's wife, Emma, Explain. So now they're going to get to Emma and her testimony about how Joseph Smith translated. Joseph Smith's wife, Emma, explained that she frequently wrote day after day at a small table in their house in Harmony, Pennsylvania. So not only was she present frequently while Joseph Smith was translating the Book of Mormon and somebody else was a scribe, she was also the scribe for portions of the Book of Mormon as Joseph Smith dictated it. She frequently wrote day after day at a small table in their house in Harmony, Pennsylvania. She described Joseph, quote, sitting with his face buried in his hat with the stone in it and dictating hour after hour 
with nothing between us, period, end of quote, from Emma Smith. According to Emma, the plates, quote, often lay on the table without any attempt at concealment, wrapped in a small linen tablecloth, period, end of quote. Well, it's a strange statement by Emma, no attempt at concealment, except for the fact they were wrapped in a small linen tablecloth. But other than that attempt at concealment, there was no attempt at concealment. And once again, Emma describes the plates being there on the table wrapped in a small linen tablecloth while Joseph Smith is dictating. He is not looking at the plates. He is looking in his hat, as she says, sitting with his face buried in his hat with the stone in it and dictating hour after hour with nothing between us. One comment about this statement by Emma Smith. This is a statement that was made by Emma Smith late in life and not long before her death. Her son, Joseph Smith III, had decided that it might be a good idea to take a statement from his mother, who was a witness to many of the early events in Mormon history. And he did so and put it down in writing. At the very beginning of this statement, Emma Smith mentions how it was that Joseph Smith dictated the Book of Mormon as it was just described in this essay. The funny thing is that this statement by Emma Smith has been quoted numerous times in church periodicals and in church talks in general conference. However, the only quotes that have been used by Emma Smith from the statement are quotes other than this quote about how Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon. Instead, the quotes that have been favored are the quotes such as the idea that Joseph Smith could not dictate a well-worded letter much less a book such as the Book of Mormon. There were other statements by Emma Smith that were faith-promoting and which accorded with the dominant narrative, which were quoted from the statement in favor of and to the exclusion of this one statement about Joseph Smith dictating the Book of Mormon with his face buried in his hat. What I'm trying to say is, is that the church has known about the statement by Emma Smith for over 150 years now. And they have known that at the very beginning of the statement, Emma Smith describes Joseph Smith as translating the Book of Mormon with his face buried in his hat with the stone in it. And yet they have chosen not to quote that part of her statement and instead quote other parts of her statement repeatedly in various talks and church manuals while studiously ignoring this one statement which is finally being given life and exposure here in the church's essay which first went up on the church website as I said earlier in the year 2013. It was not until the internet made information regarding the manner and method that Joseph Smith really used to translate the Book of Mormon publicly and widely disseminated and available to Latter-day Saints that the church finally got around to quoting this first part of Emma Smith's statement in an official church publication. As M. Russell Ballard famously said, the church is being as transparent as they know how to be. Which being interpreted apparently means that church leaders are as transparent as they are forced to be. Going back to the essay, when asked if Joseph had dictated from the Bible or from a manuscript he had prepared earlier, Emma flatly denied these possibilities. Now, this is part of the quote that we've heard before in other church writings. Before the essay, quote, he had neither manuscript nor book to read from. Emma told her son, Joseph Smith III, the Book of Mormon is of divine authenticity. I have not the slightest doubt of it. I am satisfied that no man could have dictated the writing of the manuscripts unless he was inspired. For when acting as his scribe, your father would dictate to me for hour after hour, and when returning after meals or after interruptions, he would at once begin where he had left off without either seeing the manuscript or having any portion of it read to him. 
period, end of quote. Now, once again, we've heard that quote numerous times before in other church talks and in other church manuals. It is this one statement at the beginning about how exactly it was that Joseph Smith dictated with his face in the hat that we've never heard before. Never is a strong word. Maybe it's been mentioned once or twice. I've never heard of it before in a church sanctioned periodical or manual or talk before this essay. And if it's not clear what I'm getting at, what I'm saying is this, is that the church has been aware since its inception that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon by putting his stone in a hat and his face over the hat. They've had the statement by Emma Smith, which by the way is not hearsay. This is direct testimony. She says this is how she saw, personally saw Joseph Smith translate and dictate the Book of Mormon. And yet this has been studiously ignored and suppressed until 2013 when finally it's being printed in the church essay. Now this information has gotten out and among the members of the church. It's becoming general knowledge through the internet, not through the church, but through the internet. And therefore the church is having to try and play catch up by finally including it in this essay buried three clicks deep on the LDS church website. The essay now mentions a statement by Martin Harris, who was, as you recall, described during the first part of the Book of Mormon translation, the 116 pages. Another scribe, Martin Harris, sat across the table from Joseph Smith and wrote down the words Joseph dictated. Harris later related that as Joseph used the seer stone to translate, yes, he's using the seer stone during the 116 pages, Harris later related that as Joseph used the seer stone to translate, sentences appeared. Joseph read those sentences aloud, and after pinning the words, Harris would say, written. An associate who interviewed Harris recorded him saying that Joseph possessed a seer stone by which he was enabled to translate, as well as from the Urim and Thummim, and for convenience, he then used the seer stone, period, end of quote, from Martin Harris. So that's where the church gets the idea and can shoehorn into the translation process somehow the Urim and Thummim that Joseph Smith claimed that he found in the box and the two stones in the silver rims fastened to a breastplate, which he said were prepared specifically for the use of translating the Book of Mormon. Well, according to Martin Harris, maybe initially at some point, and it's not clear whether he saw this or whether it was Joseph Smith who just told him, but initially he used the Urim and Thummim, but for convenience, he then used the seer stone. Indeed, it's hard to understand how two stones set in a silver rim in a bow that's attached to a breastplate could then be put into a hat for Joseph Smith to place his face over the hat. It's not clear whether the idea would be, well, he took the stones out of the rim and then put them in the hat. Nothing like that is ever described. It's left very loosey-goosey and unspecified. What is clear is that according to the witness statements, all of the Book of Mormon as we have it today was translated by use of Joseph Smith's seer stone and virtually all, if not all, of the 116 pages was translated by the same method. And it was only after the translation was completed, the Book of Mormon was published and the church was organized. It was only three years after the organization of the church and the publication of the Book of Mormon that the first account appears in print by William W. Phelps of Joseph Smith's seer stone being referred to as the Urim and Thummim. And by the way, it may be important to note that in this last 
section that I'm going to be reading, this last paragraph in the church essay, the description of the Urim and Thummim as being two stones in a bow and attached to a breastplate does predate Joseph Smith's 1838 history. In fact, this description goes as early as 1831 and is attributed to Oliver Cowdery. Quote, the principal scribe Oliver Cowdery testified under oath in 1831 that Joseph Smith found with the plates from which he translated his book, two transparent stones resembling glass set in silver bows, that by looking through these he was able to read in English the reformed Egyptian characters which were engraven on the plates, period, end of quote. So as I say, the title of this episode is called Lost in Translation. And the reason why it's called that is because it's so easy to get lost in all the confusing and somewhat contradictory statements regarding the method that Joseph Smith used to translate the Book of Mormon. Well, here we have an excellent example of this. We see that many of the earliest witnesses describe Joseph Smith as using his seer stone, his brown chocolate-covered egg-shaped seer stone, in the hat to translate the Book of Mormon. And yet, in 1831, we have Oliver Cowdery seemingly contradicting this and saying that Joseph Smith found with the plates from which he translated his book two transparent stones. In other words, he's saying these two transparent stones resembling glass and set in silver bows were the means from which Joseph Smith translated his book. This contradicts the other witness testimony. What's going on here? I don't have an answer to that, but it doesn't seem that both accounts can be accurate. One set of statements says that Joseph Smith used his seer stone, and now Oliver Cowdery says, no, he used the two transparent stones that he found with the plates that resembled glass that were set in silver bows and through which he looked in order to translate the Book of Mormon. So what this Gospel Topics essay does, as it does in so many of the other essays, is it presents conflicting statements from different witnesses to the same thing and simply leaves it up to the reader to try and make sense of it. I think the idea is, is that those who understand about the seer stone will take away from this essay the idea that the church is being transparent, pardon the pun, about Joseph Smith's use of the seer stone. And those who don't know about the seer stone will read about the seer stone, but they'll also read about Oliver Cowdery's description and take away from it the normal dominant narrative that they have believed all their lives. They do a similar thing with the book of Abraham, where they set forth several different theories about how the book of Abraham could have been translated, even though the text of the book of Abraham seems to have nothing to do with what's on the papyri. They set forth several different alternative theories as to how it is that the book of Abraham could nevertheless be divine scripture, that it could have been received by inspiration of God. There are several theories put forth, none of them are officially sanctioned, and the theories themselves are mutually exclusive in many respects. Similarly, in the essay on Book of Mormon Translation, several statements are put forward as to the method of translation. Some of them are different, some of them are mutually contradictory, and it is simply left for the reader to figure things out on their own. I had earlier said that the church's official position is now that Joseph Smith used the seer stone in translating the Book of Mormon. Perhaps it would be more accurate to say that one of the official positions of the church is that Joseph Smith used the seer stone to translate the Book of Mormon. They still have not actually committed themselves to any particular theory. One wishes that the LDS church actually had a living prophet that could speak with authority and finality on how it was that the Book of Mormon was really translated. I thought it might be interesting to look up 
what it is the church says about the translation of the Book of Mormon in its most recent manual, the 2020 Come Follow Me Manual for Individuals and Families, which deals with the Book of Mormon. When I went to the very first lesson in this manual, there is a brief section that describes the translation of the Book of Mormon, and it is a masterpiece because it is written in such a way that it will support either view. In other words, if you already understand that Joseph Smith used a seer stone and a hat to translate the Book of Mormon, it supports that view. But if you think that he used the Urim and Thummim, or the two stones set in the silver bow fastened to a breastplate to translate the Book of Mormon, it will support that point of view as well. Now, it's not an easy thing to write in this way, to write so generically that it will support either or both of these points of view. And yet, it seems that they've managed to do exactly this in what I call a masterpiece of manual writing. Here's what it says. How was the Book of Mormon translated? The Book of Mormon was translated by the gift and power of God. We don't know many details about the miraculous translation process. Now, that is a little bit untrue because actually we know a lot of details about the translation process. The problem is, is that the details that we know, we don't want to share in this 2020 manual. Now, I do have to give credit to the manual for linking to the Gospel Topics essay on Book of Mormon translation at the bottom of this section. I think that is to the church's credit. However, in the section that is actually part of the manual, they are going to refrain from talking about any of the details regarding the method of Book of Mormon translation. Once again, back to the new 2020 manual. The Book of Mormon was translated by the gift and power of God. We don't know many details about the miraculous translation process, but we do know that Joseph Smith was a seer, aided by instruments that God had prepared. Two transparent stones called the Urim and Thummim and another stone called a seer stone. So they do actually mention the seer stone, but that's about all it's going to get is a little mention. And if we're going to take the language of the manual seriously, it is stating that not only were the Urim and Thummim prepared by God, but also the seer stone was prepared by God. It goes on, Joseph saw in these stones, doesn't say exactly which one, could be one, could be the other, could be both. Joseph saw in these stones the English interpretation of the characters on the plates, and he read the translation aloud while a scribe recorded it. See how deftly they get around the fact that Joseph Smith actually put his seer stone into his hat and then placed his face over the hat in order to dictate, and that he didn't even look at the plates. Going on, each of Joseph's scribes testified that God's power was manifest in the translation of this sacred work. So that's how they answer the question of how the Book of Mormon was translated in the most recent manual that the church has. Once again, they have a link right below that which says, see Book of Mormon translation, gospel topics. And if you click on that, it does take you to the gospel topics essay in which they go into the details, which we read earlier. It is interesting that in the Gospel Topics essay, it now acknowledges that Joseph Smith used his seer stone for treasure digging activities prior to his using his seer stone to translate the Book of Mormon. But as I say, this essay by the church marks a sea change in how the church has addressed this subject. Prior to issuing this essay in 2013, instead of actually acknowledging the many witness testimonies of Joseph Smith's use of the seer stone in his treasure digging activities, the church has an established track record of discounting, extremely discounting stories of that nature and arguing against the historical fact that Joseph Smith was a treasure digger and that he used a seer stone 
in those excursions. In fact, a listener to this podcast named John Croc recently brought to my attention an article written by none other than LDS Apostle John A. Widsow, which appeared in the 1946 edition of the church periodical, The Improvement Era. This is from the August 1946 Improvement Era in an article that appears beginning on page 542. After first acknowledging that Joseph Smith was employed by Josiah Stoll to dig for a lost treasure mine, the article continues. Once again, this is John A. Widso, Apostle in the LDS Church, 1946. Honest historians cannot safely make the charge that Joseph Smith was a professional money digger. Likewise, no credence can be placed upon the charge that Joseph was a peepstone user. Really, now notice, this is the official position of the church in 1946. My, how things have changed. Likewise, no credence can be placed upon the charge that Joseph was a peepstone user. Anti-Mormon writers are prone to suggest that the prophet spent his time in leading people into many a fruitless chase for lost money supposed to be revealed by peepstones. Included in these stories are incantations, digging in the full of the moon, sprinkling the chosen spot with blood from a black sheep, and other like absurdities. According to these writers, every form of black art was practiced by this lad. From the age of 14 on, he must have had the whole community by the ear. It is curious that in the Palmyra newspaper of the day, seldom is a mention made of such affairs. Seldom? Well, I guess that means it was mentioned sometimes. But Elder Witzow doesn't want to go into any of those details. Instead, he continues, Perhaps the editor was himself a party to these negotiations with Lucifer! Exclamation point. Nice use of sarcasm there, Elder Witzow. The claims that Joseph Smith had had communication with supernatural beings furnished the foundation for the later tales of Mormon haters about Joseph's peepstone activities. It's interesting that this was the official church position in 1946, especially when compared with the official church position today as reflected in the 2013 essay. Then, Elder John A. Woodso continues, Then... By the usual accretions from many lips, the story grew and was fed and fostered by those in whose hearts was a hate of the work to which Joseph Smith was called by God. All of the prophet's history points away from superstition. Wow, that's an interesting conclusion. All of the prophet's history points away from superstition and towards belief in an unseen world in which God and his associates dwell. John A. Witzow concludes as follows. Carefully examined, the charges against the Smith family and Joseph Smith, the boy and young man, fail to be proved. There is no acceptable evidence to support them, only gossip and deliberate misrepresentation. The Smith family were poor but honest, hardworking, and religious people. Joseph Smith was not a money digger, nor did he deceive people with peepstone claims. It is almost beyond belief that writers who value their reputations, I guess that would include the writers of the 2013 church essay on the subject, it is almost beyond belief that writers who value their reputations would reproduce these silly and untrue charges. It suggests that they may have set out to destroy Mormonism rather than to detail true history. That's quite a condemnation of the 2013 church essay on the translation of the Book of Mormon, I must say. And finally, Elder Widsow states, The life of Joseph Smith as boy and youth was normal and worthy of imitation by all lovers of truth. So there in that final conclusion, we really see the overriding thesis of the argument. Joseph Smith was a normal boy. He was a normal youth. He was a good example. Therefore, 
Therefore, he did not engage in any of these peepstone activities in digging for treasure, which are related by many witnesses who knew him and who even engaged in these practices with him. I can only imagine that Elder John A. Widsow is spinning in his grave now that the church has contradicted the primary argument of his 1946 Improvement Era article by the release of their 2013 essay. I want to thank John Crock for bringing that article by John Widso to my attention so that I could share it with you on tonight's podcast. Going back to the article written by the two BYU professors, which served as the inspiration for this podcast, this series of podcasts, the 2000 article, the year 2000 article by Joseph Fielding McConkie and Craig J. Osler titled The Process of Translating the Book of Mormon. We finished with page one during the first episode in this series. Now we can pretty much get through page two without too much trouble or delay. The second question they ask is, Did Joseph Smith say anything about the process of translation? And their answer is, yes, Joseph affirmed that he translated from the plates. All they quote Joseph Smith for is the proposition that Joseph Smith did say he translated from the gold plates and that he used the Urim and Thummim in order to do so. He does not say exactly how it was that he managed the process. The next question is, what was the testimony of Oliver Cowdery on the matter? And once again, they quote Oliver Cowdery to a similar effect because Oliver Cowdery never leaves a statement as to the exact process by which Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon. He does say that he used the Urim and Thummim, or as the Nephites would have said, the interpreters, but he doesn't say exactly how he managed it. Now on page three of their article, once again, this is page three on the internet version of this article, they get to the question, what should we know about the process of translation. And their answer proceeds as follows. Certainly, each member of the church should have a meaningful understanding of that which the Lord has revealed to us on the matter. Our query then becomes, to what revelation do we turn? The answer is Doctrine and Covenants 9, in which we learn that Oliver Cowdery commenced to translate and then lost his courage and could not continue. Now, that's an interesting description that Oliver lost his courage. There's nothing about the revelations that says that Oliver lost his courage. Rather, something completely different is described. But it is interesting to me that they feel it necessary to blame Oliver Cowdery with a made-up scenario of his losing courage when actually what the Lord said, as they quote correctly, is, you must study it out in your mind. Then you must ask me if it be right, and if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore, you shall feel that it is right. But if it be not right, you shall have no such feelings, but you shall have a stupor of thought that shall cause you to forget the thing which is wrong. Therefore, you cannot write that which is sacred, save it be given you from me. That's Doctrine and Covenants, section 9, verses 8 through 9. Now, this is a passage of scripture that is quoted with great frequency in LDS manuals and church talks, but generally it is unmoored from its context of the translation of ancient documents. When it is used today, it is generally in the context of saying, if you have a decision that you have to make on a personal basis, then what you need to do first is you need to study it out in your mind. You need to research it. You need to read about it. You need to investigate it. And then after you've researched it, all the pros and the cons, you need to take it to God and God will let you know which of the two options is 
correct. Should I take this job? Should I not take this job? Should I marry this woman? Should I not marry this woman? Should I move to this location? Should I not move to this location? Those are generally the only types of questions that we're even permitted to use this method on today. But once again, this is a yes-no type of scenario. It is either yes, you get a burning in your bosom, or it's a no because you get a stupor of thought. What makes this interesting and actually in my mind, unworkable, is if you put this whole description back in the context of where it was in section 9, and that's Oliver Cowdery trying to translate the Book of Mormon and failing. Because remember, here's Oliver Cowdery. He's trying to translate the Book of Mormon. He's trying to translate it from a language that nobody knows. It's Reformed Egyptian. It's not like he can go out and study it out in his mind. He can't go to the nearest library and check out books on how to translate Reformed Egyptian. There are no books. There is no way to study it out in his mind, at least in the conventional sense of the word. What is it exactly that he's supposed to study? How is he supposed to study this out in his mind? That's my question. The Lord refuses to allow him to translate after saying he could in the first place. That's section eight, by the way. Section eight is where God greenlights Oliver Cowdery's translation of the Book of Mormon. Section nine is where he says, eh, sorry, you lose. The reason why you lose is because you failed to study it out in your mind. You thought that I would give it to you when you took no thought save it was to ask me. But behold, I say unto you that you've got to study it out in your mind. Well, what does that mean to study it out in his mind? I don't understand how Oliver Cowdery could study it out in his mind. Is he supposed to just sort of stare at the plates and ponder on them and think about them? I don't understand. It doesn't seem to make any sense to me. But it seems that the two BYU professors who wrote this article are having a similar struggle to the one that I'm having to figure out what the heck it means to study it out in your mind. Obviously, Oliver Cowdery can't translate because he didn't study it out in his mind. Joseph Smith can translate, therefore, he must have studied it out in his mind. Well, what does it mean for Joseph Smith to study it out in his mind before he translates? What is it he's doing that enables him to translate that Oliver Cowdery didn't do and therefore could not translate? Here's what the BYU professors say. In this context, let us give at least brief consideration to the preparation that Joseph Smith made in order to have the sense and feel of this ancient record he was translating. So he's translating not by dictation, not by actual translating. He's translating by sense and feel. That seems an odd way to do it. First, it would be well to observe that he had received considerable tutoring from Moroni and other prophets from the Book of Mormon. So they're saying that part of his studying it out in his mind was the tutoring he received from Moroni. In the Wentworth letter, Joseph Smith tells us that Moroni told him about the original inhabitants of this country and gave him a sketch of their origin, progress, civilization, laws, governments, of their righteousness and iniquity and the blessings of God being finally withdrawn from them as a people. In the Wentworth letter, which was published in 1842, Joseph Smith actually adds this information to his account of what Moroni told him when he first appeared to him in 1823. So according to these authors, Joseph Smith is being prepared to translate the Book of Mormon by being tutored by Moroni about the inhabitants, i.e. the Nephites and being given a brief sketch of their origin, progress, civilization, laws, governments, of their righteousness and iniquity, and the blessings of God being finally withdrawn from them as a people. This paper then goes on to talk about the recollection of Lucy Mack Smith, Joseph Smith's mother, when Joseph was 
a boy. Prior to getting the Book of Mormon plates and translating the Book of Mormon, she wrote about how Joseph Smith would entertain the family at nights by talking about the ancient inhabitants of the Americas. Here's the quote from Lucy Mack Smith as quoted in this paper. In the course of our evening conversations, Joseph gave us some of the most amusing recitals which could be imagined. He would describe the ancient inhabitants of this continent, their dress, their manner of traveling, the animals which they rode, the cities that they built, and the structure of their buildings in every particular, their mode of warfare, and their religious worship, as specifically as though he had spent his life with them. It will be recollected by the reader that all that I mentioned and much more took place within the compass of one short year. And it appears that she is describing the year in which Joseph Smith was 18 years old. That's because earlier in this passage, also quoted in this paper, she states, I think that we presented the most peculiar aspect of any family that ever lived upon the earth, all seated in a circle father, mother, sons, and daughters, listening in breathless anxiety to the religious teachings of a boy 18 years of age who had never read the Bible through by course in his life. So according to Lucy Max Smith, Joseph Smith is telling the family not only about every detail and every particular about the living situation and the history of the ancient inhabitants of the American continent, i.e. the Nephites, he's also telling the family about religious teachings, which taken all together is an accurate thumbnail synopsis of the entirety of the Book of Mormon itself. So this was the year when Joseph Smith was 18. That would have been the year 1824. And according to Joseph Smith's history, he had the first vision in 1820, Moroni first appeared to him in 1823, and Joseph finally got the plates from Moroni four years later in September of 1827. So what she appears to be describing is the family gathering around Joseph Smith to hear him in the evenings when he was 18 years old in the year 1824, describing every particular about the ancient inhabitants of this continent up to and including their religious teachings. According to these two BYU professors, this is the preparation that Joseph Smith received. This is how he studied it out in his mind. It's not exactly clear how Moroni, giving him a brief sketch of the ancient inhabitants of this continent, as per the Wentworth letter, or his gathering his family around to tell them in every particular about the ancient inhabitants of this continent, as per Lucy Max Smith's description of the situation, all of this, by the way, years before obtaining and translating the Book of Mormon, it is not clear how this qualifies as studying it out in his mind, and yet that is the position these two BYU professors want to take. And that's probably because this is the only way they can even make any sense whatsoever out of this description that you have to study it out in your mind prior to being able to translate. Now, before going on, I have to bring up something that I just noticed. There is a trick that the BYU professors are trying to pull in their paper, and I want to explain it to you right now. It is clear that there is a difference between Joseph Smith saying that Moroni gave him a brief sketch of the history of the inhabitants of this continent when he appeared to him versus what his mother, Lucy Max Smith, describes, which is that Joseph Smith described all this stuff in detail to the family, telling them stories about the ancient inhabitants with such particularity as if Joseph Smith had lived his life among them. Joseph Smith says a brief sketch. Lucy Max Smith describes an intimate knowledge and acquaintance with this information. And it is obvious that the BYU professors are aware that there is a discrepancy here between these two versions. And so, instead of quoting the Wentworth letter, 
where Joseph Smith says that Moroni gave him a brief sketch, they drop the brief off when they're quoting the Wentworth letter, and they simply say that Moroni told him about the original inhabitants of this country and gave him a sketch of their origin progress. You know, they start the quotation mark with A, and they leave out brief. So it seems clear from this fact the BYU professors dropped the word brief that not only are they aware that there's this discrepancy between the way Joseph Smith describes it and the way his mother describes it, but they are intentionally going to try and keep it from their audience. If they had started the quotation mark with sketch, then we would know that they dropped brief off of their quotation. But instead, they start the quotation mark with a sketch and they drop the word brief without any indication that they are not quoting it in its entirety. This is a violation of one of the fundamental rules of scholarship. You do not quote something from another source and then leave out words without some indication that you have dropped a word. That's what ellipses are for. But there are no ellipses in this quote that these two BYU professors make of Joseph Smith's Wentworth letter. They simply drop the word brief from the quotation. So they quote Joseph Smith as saying that Moroni gave him a sketch when actually what Joseph Smith said in the Wentworth letter is that Moroni gave him a brief sketch of the inhabitants of the American continent. This is deceptive. This is a misquote of the original source and it's clear from the misquote that they're engaged more in polemics and Mormon apologetics than they are in actual history. Now going on with the podcast. It is possible to look at this description of Joseph Smith studying it out in his mind in another way, that Joseph Smith studied it out in his mind by coming up with these ideas, with these concepts over a period of years, with these stories about the ancient inhabitants of the Americas. Indeed, Lucy Mack Smith seems to report and describe Joseph Smith telling the family all about every particular of the ancient inhabitants of the Americas, in other words, of the characters in the Book of Mormon prior to dictating and translating the Book of Mormon. Once again, she says he would describe the ancient inhabitants of this continent, their dress, their manner of traveling, the animals which they rode, the cities that they built, and the structure of their buildings with every particular, their mode of warfare, and their religious worship, as specifically as though he had spent his life with them. Now that sounds more than just a brief sketch that Joseph Smith describes Moroni giving him when he appears to him the first time in 1823. This is a young man who has the entire story, or at least the framework and outlines of the story, even down to every particular, according to Lucy Mack Smith, his mother, in 1824, four years before commencing the translation of the lost 116 pages, and fully five years before beginning the translation of the Book of Mormon as we have it today, which occurred in 1829. So when it is sometimes said that Joseph Smith dictated the Book of Mormon in a period of approximately three months in 1829... It should be recollected that, according to his own mother, he had apparently been sharing with his family stories about the ancient inhabitants of the Americas in every particular five years prior to that dictation. But now I've gotten off in a bit of a tangent. Let's go back to this paper because these authors, the two BYU professors, are saying this is how Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon. This is how he studied it out in his mind because he was tutored by Moroni. And because he knew all these details about the ancient inhabitants of the Americas, in other words, he already knew all the details about the Nephites and the people in the Book of Mormon that this somehow prepared him to translate the gold plates. The reason this doesn't make sense to me 
is that let's say that I am trying to translate a book about Germany that is written in German. I don't know German. I have never studied German, and I wouldn't be able to translate the first word in German, okay? And let's also suppose that there are no books about how to translate German, the German language. It is a lost language. Now, let's also suppose that I go and get books written in English about Germany and about the history of Germany, and I find out all these things about the history of Germany. All right, now I come back to this book that's actually written in German that I still can't read. How is my knowledge about the history of Germany going to help me translate this book if what I'm doing is actually a translation of this book? Answer is, it's not. Just knowing about the history of Germany, no matter how intimately I'm acquainted with all the details about the history of Germany, doesn't help me one whit in coming to a book that's written in German and translating from German into English. They're two completely separate things. And once again, these BYU professors may be suggesting more than they intend to because if I know everything about the history of Germany and I come to a book that's written in German and nobody can translate German, it's a lost language, remember, in my example. So even though my intimate knowledge of the history of Germany is of absolutely no use in translating a document that's written in German, there is yet another way that I could produce a book which is purportedly a translation of a document written in German, but it would not actually be a document that is a translation. Rather, it would be a document that I made up from the details I learned. Now I can use all the details that I learned from my study about Germany and I can pretend that I am translating this book. And as long as what I am translating from remains a lost language and nobody can translate German except for me and I'm doing it by the gift and power of God, nobody will know whether I'm actually doing a literal translation of the book or not, whether I'm really translating from the German language into English or not. And this seems to be what these BYU professors are inadvertently suggesting. Now let's take my hypothetical about German and Germany one more step. And let's suppose that nobody in the world knows about the Germans. Nobody knows about the history of Germany. Nobody knows anything about the history of the occupants of Germany. And yet, and yet, I decide out of my creative imagination to make up stories about the inhabitants of Germany even detailed stories that describe in every particular how they lived, how they worked, how they worshipped, their buildings, how they built them, the animals they rode, and even their religious practices. And then I claim to translate a book that is written in German which accurately reproduces all of those details. And then, after I'm done translating this book, over the course of decades, archaeologists actually go into Germany and begin doing excavation work, and unfortunately none of the details that I provide in my book correspond to the details as they actually existed in the real history of Germany. That is, unfortunately, the hypothetical that we're left with that most accurately represents what it is that Joseph Smith appears to have done with his production of the Book of Mormon. And his production of the Book of Mormon is similar to his production of the Book of Abraham. Now, Joseph Smith's problem with translating the book of Abraham is that he translated from Egyptian papyri, which at the time he translated them could not be translated. It was a locked language to scholars, to the world. And as long as it remained a locked language, his translation was safe. But as it became known and able to be deciphered and translated, the Egyptian papyri from which he purported to translate the book of Abraham, it became obvious to the world and even to LDS scholars now, and even to the LDS church, which has admitted it on its own website, that the text of the book of Abraham has nothing to do with what is on the papyri from which Joseph Smith purported to translate 
the book of Abraham. Which raises the interesting question that since we know that the book of Abraham produced by Joseph Smith has little to nothing to do with the papyri from which he said he translated the book of Abraham, is it possible that the same thing applies to the Book of Mormon. In other words, to the extent that the gold plates actually existed and that there were actually reformed Egyptian characters from which Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon, is it possible that the translation of the Book of Mormon, like the Book of Abraham, has nothing to do with the actual characters from which he translated the Book of Mormon? And might that have something to do with why it is that Joseph Smith never needed to look at the plates anyway? Because what he was translating had nothing to do either with the gold plates or what was written on the gold plates, but it had more to do with the stories that he had previously created or had revealed to him, but somehow knew about prior to his translation of the Book of Mormon, the stories that he regaled his family with, in which he displayed a knowledge of every detail and every particular of the lives of the ancient inhabitants of the Americas. But now I've gotten off the beaten path and once again showed why it is that this episode is titled Lost in Translation. It's easy to get lost, not only in translation, but in a discussion of the translation, especially the translation of the Book of Mormon. I need to get back to that article written in 2000 by the two BYU professors because that's where I started before getting a bit off in the weeds on this particular line of thought. And yet these kinds of tangents are the roads that one must go down at least a certain distance whenever discussing the Book of Mormon. That is, if the discussion is intended to be thorough and true to the evidence. This is what I have attempted to do in this podcast, is to be thorough and be true to the evidence and try to get to the bottom, at least so far as I am capable, of what on earth happened during this translation by Joseph Smith of the Book of Mormon. And I will confess to you that it is because of these contradictions, these peculiarities, these circularities in the available evidence on this subject that talking about the translation of the Book of Mormon in any type of coherent manner is such a daunting task. I am trying to be as coherent as I possibly can. I will continue to try and be as coherent as I possibly can. And I apologize to you for what may appear to be certain circularities in the recording of this podcast, circularities with regard to the evidence. And those circularities I can best explain by the simple fact that the evidence itself is, in some regards, circular. And once again, getting back to the use of the argument here, the use of the argument in this paper by these two BYU professors is that this is how Joseph Smith studied it out in his mind because for years he was being taught these things by angels. That's how he knew all about the details about the Book of Mormon before he even translated the Book of Mormon. But Oliver Cowdery did not study it out in his mind. In other words, <laughs> but Oliver Cowdery did not study it out in his mind and therefore he wasn't able to translate. Once again, going back to where we started, what sense does that make? How is it Oliver Cowdery's fault that he did not have years of preparation, even assuming that everything these BYU professors say in this paper is true? How is it Oliver Cowdery's fault that he didn't have all this tutoring by angels for years prior to his attempt to dictate and translate the Book of Mormon? How is that his fault? Why is he the one who can't translate because he didn't go through this entire process for years by being tutored by angels? And yet this is the reason that God gives for not allowing Oliver Cowdery to translate. And you know, one of the funny things about section nine is that here is what God says to Oliver Cowdery. The entirety of that passage was not quoted in this paper. I'm going to go to Doctrine and Covenants section nine in order to quote the entire passage for you. Here's what it says. Section nine, verse seven, behold, you have not understood. This is God speaking to Oliver Cowdery after Oliver cannot translate the Book of Mormon. 
Behold, you have not understood. You have supposed that I would give it unto you when you took no thought, save it was to ask me. And that's when it goes on to say, but behold, I say unto you that you must study it out in your mind. Then you must ask me if it be right. And if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore, you shall feel that it is right. Now, what sense does that make? Okay, that passage can make sense when you are trying to ask a yes or no question. If it's yes, burning bosom, no, stupor of thought. We get that, that part's clear. But what does this have to do with translating from one language into another? That is not a yes or no question. That is not a binary question. Are we supposed to think that you come up with it in your mind? You come up with an expression like, I, Nephi, being born of goodly parents, and then you pray to God and you say, is that correct or is it not? And God gives you a burning in the bosom, so you think it's correct. So now you go on to the next passage, and now you make something else up. And now you ask God, is that true or is it not? It doesn't make any sense. At least not as we typically understand how a document is translated from one language into another. God tells Oliver he could not translate because he did not study it out in his mind. What on earth was he supposed to study out in his mind that would have enabled him to be able to translate? That's the question that I have. But... That's not the only question I have regarding this issue in Mormon history. This next problem occurred to me only while I was actually researching and preparing this podcast. And this next problem runs as follows. What God tells Oliver Cowdery is, Behold, you have not understood. You have supposed that I would give it unto you when you took no thought, save it was to ask me. Well, why on earth did Oliver think that all he had to do was ask God for the translation and God would give it to him? The funny thing is, it's in the very previous section of the Doctrine and Covenants, section 8, the one where God told Oliver that he could translate. And there in section 8, verse 9, it says, And therefore, whatsoever you shall ask me to tell you by that means, that will I grant unto you, and you shall have knowledge concerning it. So it's God who told him that all he had to do was to ask God by that means. We'll get to that here in a second. But all he had to do was ask God once again, and therefore whatsoever, that means anything, whatsoever you shall ask me to tell you by that means that will I grant unto you and you shall have knowledge concerning it. And once again, so it's clear that this is what it's talking about is the translation as that in verse 11, it says, ask that you may know the mysteries of God and that you may translate and receive knowledge from all those ancient records, which have been hid up that are sacred. And according to your faith, shall it be done unto you. Nothing about studying it out in your mind. Just ask God, ask him in faith and you will be able to translate Oliver apparently asks, it's not given to him, and now all of a sudden, in the next section, God is upbraiding Oliver Cowdery for doing what it was that God told Oliver Cowdery to do. In other words, God tells him to ask God for the translation, and God will give it to him. Now Oliver Cowdery asks him for the translation, God doesn't give it to him, and guess what? It's Oliver Cowdery's fault. Why? Because he didn't study it out in his mind. Well, God never told him to study it out in his mind. God never said how to study it out in his mind. But because Oliver Cowdery didn't study it out in his mind, Oliver Cowdery doesn't get to translate. Now, if you were Oliver Cowdery in this position, you might be a little bit cheesed. And in fact, Oliver Cowdery apparently was cheesed about this situation. And that's why it is that in verse 6 of section 9, God has to tell Oliver Cowdery, Do not murmur, my son. 
for it is wisdom in me that I have dealt with you after this manner. Well, if he has to tell Oliver Cowdery not to murmur, it's because Oliver Cowdery was murmuring. In other words, he was pretty hacked off. And now let's talk a little bit about the method that Oliver Cowdery was supposed to use to translate the Book of Mormon in the first place, because we know by now that Joseph Smith used the method of his seer stone to translate the Book of Mormon by putting his seer stone in the hat, etc. How was Oliver Cowdery supposed to translate the Book of Mormon? Was he supposed to translate it by the same method, by taking Joseph Smith's seer stone and placing it in the hat? No, apparently Oliver Cowdery was instructed to use his device to translate the Book of Mormon. You will recall that Oliver Cowdery had a divining rod that he used for various purposes prior to becoming associated with Joseph Smith. It was this divining rod that section eight ends up calling the gift of Aaron. You remember the Book of Commandments, 1833, first calls it the Rod of Aaron or the Rod of Nature. And two years later, by the time the first edition of the Doctrine and Covenants is issued, that has been cleaned up to remove any reference to a rod at all. It is simply the gift of Aaron. But when you know that's the background behind it, you can see that according to Section 8, it was Oliver Cowdery's rod that he was supposed to use in order to translate the Book of Mormon. And here's what it says. Now, this is not all thy gift. This is verse six of section eight. Now, this is not all thy gift for you have another gift, which is the gift of Aaron. Remember, that's the gift of working with the rod in the earlier version. Behold, it is told you many things. Behold, there is no other power save the power of God that can cause this gift of Aaron to be with you. Therefore, doubt not for it is the gift of God and you shall hold it in your hands. This is the current Doctrine and Covenants, remember, that I'm reading from. It leaves in the reference to the fact that you can hold it in your hands because it was an actual physical rod that Oliver Cowdery had. It was his divining rod. And you shall hold it in your hands and do marvelous works, and no power shall be able to take it away out of your hands, for it is the work of God. And then verse 9, And therefore, whatsoever you shall ask me to tell you by that means... That's by the means of his divining rod. And therefore, whatsoever you shall ask me to tell you by that means, that will I grant unto you, and you shall have knowledge concerning it. Remember that without faith you can do nothing, therefore ask in faith. Trifle not with these things, do not ask for that which you ought not. And then verse 11, ask that you may know the mysteries of God, and that you may translate and receive knowledge from all those ancient records which have been hid up that are sacred, and according to your faith shall it be done unto you. So it appears from section 8, once you know the earlier version of this revelation in the Book of Commandments, it appears from section 8 in the Doctrine and Covenants that not only did Oliver Cowdery have a divining rod in his possession, which he had used prior to his coming to know Joseph Smith, but also that it was by means of his rod that he was supposed to translate now, once again, this raises in my mind the question, how is this supposed to work? I understand how Joseph Smith has a seer stone and he can put it in a hat and then he can read off the seer stone what is projected in the divine illumination. But how is Oliver Cowdery supposed to use a divining rod to translate from one language into another? I am not aware of any documents that shed any light on that particular question. I am left to speculation because the divining rod seems to be a little bit too big to stick in a hat and then put your face over the hat and look and see what might be on the divining rod. Maybe that was ultimately the problem that Oliver Cowdery had with his translation is that no 
instruction was given as to how to use his divining rod in order to translate a manuscript. Now, using a divining rod is okay for, once again, a yes or no type question. Is there water here? The divining rod dips, perhaps, or moves in some way in his hands. Or is there buried treasure around here? Well, when he gets to the place over which the buried treasure is buried, then the divining rod moves or dips or does something in his hand. It's okay for yes or no questions, but how do you use a divining rod, which is designed for yes or no questions, in order to dictate or translate from one language into another? That's the part that has me flummoxed. If I were to speculate, maybe they had something like a Ouija board where all the letters of the alphabet are set forth and the divining rod goes from one letter to another and spells out words. Perhaps there's some sand that's put on the ground or they go to a place where it's sandy and they use the divining rod to draw out letters or write things in the dirt. I don't know. I'm trying to make sense of this myself. Once again, this is purely speculation on my part. There's nobody who describes it. All we know is that it appears that Oliver Cowdery was given the green light by God to translate the Book of Mormon by use of his divining rod, which doesn't seem to make any sense. How is he going to use his divining rod to translate the Book of Mormon? And he is told that all he has to do is ask God and God will give him the translation. And then Oliver Cowdery apparently does so. He asks God. God does not give him the translation. Oliver Cowdery fails in his attempt to translate the Book of Mormon. And now God upbraids Oliver Cowdery and blames him because he thought all he had to do was ask God, like God told him to in section eight, but now in section nine, God tells him, no, you were wrong. You thought you only had to ask me. You actually had to study it out in your mind before you could translate. And yet, how do you study it out in your mind when the Book of Mormon is written in an unknown language? What does that even mean? It appears that the two BYU professors who wrote this paper have no idea either, even though they were game enough to attempt an explanation, an explanation that ultimately failed, I believe. And so God allows Oliver Cowdery to do something which is for all intents and purposes unworkable, i.e. use a rod to translate from one language to another. And then when Oliver Cowdery fails to be able to translate the Book of Mormon, God upbraids him for not doing something else that appears to be unworkable, i.e. because he didn't study it out in his mind before he tried to translate. Now, before I close out this podcast, I want to talk a little bit about a fascinating insight that may have been raised by these authors regarding the manner in which Joseph Smith actually did translate the Book of Mormon. You will remember that they have said that he studied it out in his mind prior to his translation. And as we have seen, whatever study it out in his mind meant, it did not mean what we would normally expect study it out in your mind to mean in order to translate a document, a book from one language to another because the Book of Mormon was in a language that could not be read. Joseph Smith could not go out and study Reformed Egyptian by getting a textbook on it. So whatever study it out in your mind meant, it had to be something other than the normal understanding of that expression when it comes to translating a document. These two BYU professors have possibly set the stage for us to understand what it did mean because they've already talked about how it was that Lucy Max Smith, Joseph Smith's own mother, said that when Joseph Smith was 18 years old, that would be in 1824. Joseph Smith was 18 throughout the year of 1824. This would have been after the first visitation of Moroni in September of 1823, and years before he actually commenced the dictation of the Book of Mormon. I am indebted to Dan Vogel for this insight, 
And Dan Vogel is probably the guy who knows as much, if not more, than anybody else in the world regarding Joseph Smith in his early years and the circumstances surrounding his translation of the Book of Mormon. Once again, Lucy Max Smith recalls that when Joseph Smith was 18, remember this is in 1824, in the course of our evening conversations, Joseph gave us some of the most amusing recitals which could be imagined. He would describe the ancient inhabitants of this continent, their dress, their manner of traveling, the animals which they rode, the cities that they built, and the structure of their buildings with every particular, their mode of warfare, and their religious worship as specifically as though he had spent his life with them. Now that, as I mentioned before, is a good thumbnail sketch of everything that is in the Book of Mormon. And yet, Lucy Mack Smith says that Joseph Smith could regale the family with stories about the Book of Mormon years before Joseph Smith actually dictated the Book of Mormon. So, first off, is it possible that these two BYU professors are correct insofar as that Joseph Smith's ability to tell stories about the ancient inhabitants of the American continent in such detail years before he translated the Book of Mormon, is it possible that that is part of how Joseph Smith studied it out in his mind? He already has the stories down years before. If Joseph Smith could tell his family about all these stories in such particular as if he had spent his life with them according to his mother, would it be possible for him to do the same thing years later with his face in a hat? Is it possible that that was part of studying it out in his mind? Is it possible that part of studying it out in his mind had to do with his study of the Bible and specifically the King James Version? of the Bible, and does that account for why it is that vast portions of the King James Version of the Bible end up appearing in the text of the Book of Mormon? Was that part of studying it out in his mind? Is it possible that Joseph Smith's familiarity with the religion of his day was part of studying it out in his mind, and specifically his knowledge of the Methodist Church? Does that account for why the theology of the Book of Mormon closely resembles the Methodist teachings of Joseph Smith's day. Was that part of studying it out in his mind? Remember, according to Joseph Smith, he attended their meetings as often as occasion would permit. Now, of course, that was not just the Methodist religion, but also the Presbyterian religion and the other religions in Joseph Smith's neighborhood. He went to all their different meetings, and he was aware of the different contentions and arguments over doctrine and theology that existed between these different religions which he later describes as a war of words and contest of opinions. Time after time, the Book of Mormon identifies religious disputes that were common in Joseph Smith's day and then corrects them by coming down on one side or the other. Those religious disputes included whether infant baptism was proper, the method and mode of baptism, the nature of salvation, and even the nature of God. Remember, Lucy Max Smith stated, Every evening we gathered our children together and gave our time up to the discussion of those things which he, Joseph, instructed us. I think that we presented the most peculiar aspect of any family that ever lived upon the earth, all seated in a circle, father, mother, sons, and daughters, listening in breathless anxiety to the religious teachings, the religious teachings of a boy 18 years of age who had never read the Bible through by course in his life. Was this part of how Joseph Smith studied it out? 
in his mind. And by the way, when Lucy Mack Smith says that Joseph had never read the Bible through by course in his life, that means reading it sequentially from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. It does not mean that Joseph Smith had never studied the Bible at all. Going on, Joseph Smith, who attended all of the religious meetings as often as occasion would permit, would doubtless have been at camp revival meetings where it was common for people in attendance to be moved upon by the Holy Ghost to be quote-unquote slain in the spirit, fall down, be unconscious and insensate for a period of time, and then after a while jump up again and exclaim that they had received a religious experience and a religious conversion. Is that why that same sort of experience is recounted time after time in the Book of Mormon as well? Was that part of Joseph Smith studying it out in his mind? Is this why when Joseph Smith's father had a dream about the Tree of Life, much earlier than Joseph Smith's translation of the Book of Mormon, is that why that same dream or a dream very similar to it shows up early on in the pages of the Book of Mormon, but instead of Joseph Smith's father, it is put in the mouth of the Book of Mormon character, Lehi. Was Joseph Smith's familiarity with his father's dream of the Tree of Life part of studying it out in his mind to prepare him for translating the Book of Mormon? And here I have to note parenthetically that in the Book of Mormon, it is the character Nephi, the son of Lehi, who ends up interpreting his father's dream of the Tree of Life in the Book of First Nephi. It is interesting that what Joseph Smith ends up doing in the Book of Mormon is recounting his own father's dream and then providing his interpretation. In other words, the Book of Mormon has Nephi interpreting his father's dream of the Tree of Life, and the Book of Mormon can be read as Joseph Smith providing the interpretation of his father's dream of the Tree of Life. Going on. In Joseph Smith's day, it was a widely held belief that the Native Americans were actually Jews who had come over from Jerusalem hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years before, and had ended up populating the Americas. And that is how it was that when the white settlers came to the New World, they found people already there, that these were actually Jews who had come from Jerusalem thousands of years before. Joseph Smith was doubtless familiar with those stories. And here he produces a Book of Mormon that is an origin story, looked at it on a macro level. From the 20,000 foot view, the Book of Mormon is an origin story of the Native Americans and shows how it was that they actually came from Jerusalem thousands of years earlier was Joseph Smith's familiarity with those stories that circulated widely in his culture and environment about the origins of the Native Americans. Was that also part of Joseph Smith studying it out in his mind. Is that why it took four years for Joseph Smith to get the Book of Mormon, from the first time he says the angel appeared to him in 1823 until he was finally allowed to get the record in 1827, was one of the reasons that it took so long for him to get the Book of Mormon to begin translating so that he had time enough to study it out in his mind. Now we know the official story is that Joseph Smith had to go back to the Hill Cumorah on the same night once a year for four years before he could actually get the plates because every time he went back he had done something wrong. He had not fulfilled some requirement in order to allow Moroni to give him the plates. It's like Moroni is the gold plates Nazi. Every year for four years he says to Joseph Smith, no plates for you, come back, one year. But is it possible that Joseph Smith needed that time period in order to be able to study it out in his mind, whatever that means, sufficiently to be prepared to translate the Book of Mormon when he finally was able to get the plates? And lastly, is this why the concepts of so many other books and writings in Joseph Smith's day end up making their way into 
the pages of the Book of Mormon, and by this I mean writings in addition to the King James Version of the Bible, writings such as Adam Clark's Old and New Testament Commentary on the Bible. We know that many of those concepts from Adam Clark's Bible Commentary made it into Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible, but I think that there will also be evidence forthcoming and has already been discovered that elements of Adam Clark's Bible Commentary also make it into the Book of Mormon. Was studying books such as Adam Clark's Bible Commentary as well as other books, possibly View of the Hebrews? Was that also part of Joseph Smith studying it out in his mind to be ready to translate the Book of Mormon? And is it possible that Joseph Smith's study and reading of other books to prepare himself to translate the Book of Mormon, to study it out in his mind, is it possible that an oblique reference to this very method is found in Doctrine and Covenants section 88 verse 118, a very famous scripture in the LDS Church and one that is often heard, but might it have application here in verse 118 where it says, Seek ye out of the best books words of wisdom. Seek learning, even by study, and also by faith. Is this possibly also a description of how Joseph Smith studied it out in his mind to prepare himself to translate the Book of Mormon, that he sought out of the best books, words of wisdom, and those words of wisdom, or at least what he saw as words of wisdom, managed to make their way into the Book of Mormon itself, that he sought learning even by study and also by faith. So as I say, the small phrase in Doctrine and Covenants section 9, upbraiding Oliver Cowdery for thinking he could translate without studying it out in his mind first, is this an indication that Joseph Smith, who was able to translate, did study it out in his mind first, that he studied it out in his mind for years prior to translating the Book of Mormon, and that the studying it out in his mind actually accounts for what we have in the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith appears to have been studying it out in his mind for years prior to his dictation of the Book of Mormon, and he did it by placing his seer stone in his hat, placing his face over the hat, and then dictating the contents of the Book of Mormon as we have it today. As one of my friends mentioned yesterday when I was talking to him about this subject, he said, you know, it's a top hat that Joseph Smith had that he put his seer stone into. Now, a magic trick, a common magic trick that we hear of is magicians pulling a rabbit out of a top hat. Well, what Joseph Smith did could be viewed as a magic trick as well, except instead of pulling a rabbit out of his hat, he pulled a book out of his hat. And that book is the Book of Mormon. One final comment on this subject. And once again, I'm indebted to Dan Vogel for this insight. Is the question, how could Joseph Smith have seen the Book of Mormon as legitimately being from God? Now, it appears from section 88, verse 118, that he saw his role as preparing himself by study and also by faith, that he sought out of the best books, words of wisdom. How could Joseph Smith have seen his final product that he dictated, i.e. the Book of Mormon, as being from God? Well, the Book of Mormon itself may give us an answer to that question, because as you know, the Book of Mormon, from beginning to end, testifies of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ appears in the Book of Mormon 600 years before Jesus Christ was born, and that's one of the anachronisms of the Book of Mormon, is that the Book of Mormon people and prophets have a complete knowledge of Jesus Christ's birth, his mortal ministry, his death, his resurrection, even his baptism by John the Baptist hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And yet it cannot be gainsaid that from beginning to end, 
The Book of Mormon testifies of Jesus Christ like no other book. In fact, back in the 1980s, I was very proud of the statistical fact that references to Jesus Christ appear more often in the Book of Mormon than they do in the Bible. But if we want to find out how it is that we can know whether something is from God, all we have to do is go to Moroni chapter 7, which gives us that definition. And guess what? The Book of Mormon fits that definition. And this is in Moroni 7, verses 16 through 17. You probably heard this passage before too. For behold, the Spirit of Christ is given to every man that he may know good from evil. Wherefore, I show unto you the way to judge. For everything which inviteth to do good and to persuade to believe in Christ is sent forth by the power and gift of Christ. Wherefore, ye may know with a perfect knowledge it is of God. Well, the Book of Mormon certainly inviteth to do good. It certainly persuades to believe in Christ. And therefore, by the Book of Mormon's own definition, you may know with a perfect knowledge that it, the Book of Mormon, is from God. And then verse 17 gives the opposite idea. But whatsoever thing persuadeth men to do evil and believe not in Christ and deny him and serve not God, then ye may know with a perfect knowledge it is of the devil. So the Book of Mormon itself gives the definition as to how it is that you can know with a perfect knowledge that the Book of Mormon is from God because it invites to do good and persuades to believe in Christ. From beginning to end, the Book of Mormon persuades to believe in Christ. And therefore, by the Book of Mormon's own definition, you can know that it is from God. It's not from the devil because the devil does not persuade to believe in Christ. In fact, the devil persuades to not believe in Christ. Therefore, the Book of Mormon is not from the devil. It is from God. So really, going by the Book of Mormon's own definition, whether the Book of Mormon is from God has nothing to do with how it was translated. It has nothing to do with how it was dictated. It has nothing to do with how Joseph Smith studied it out in his mind for years prior to dictating the Book of Mormon. And it has nothing to do with whether the Book of Mormon text is an accurate translation of the characters that were on the gold plates. The only thing we need to know about whether the Book of Mormon is from God is whether it testifies of Christ, and that the Book of Mormon does in spades. Let me focus for a second on one phrase from that passage in Moroni that we just read that just jumped out at me because I think it may be of significance. You will remember that Joseph Smith's famous and basically his only description that he ever left of how it was that he translated the Book of Mormon was by the gift and power of God. He said that over and over. It was by the gift and power of God. And yet here in Moroni chapter 7 verse 16, there is basically a synonymous phrase that is used in this definition that we just read. Wherefore, I show unto you the way to judge for everything which inviteth to do good and to persuade to believe in Christ is sent forth by the power and gift of Christ. Wherefore, you may know with a perfect knowledge it is of God, but it is that phrase, the power and gift of Christ, that caught my attention. Notice power and gift. It's the same two words just flipped. Gift and power, power and gift of Christ. Well, Christ is God. So the Book of Mormon itself is saying, if something invites to do good and persuades to believe in Christ, you can know it is sent forth by the power and gift of Christ. Put another way, it is sent forth by the gift and power of God. So it sounds to me that Joseph Smith, in describing his translation as being given by the gift and power of God, may be riffing 
off this very passage from Moroni or a concept that is similar to this passage in Moroni, that if something is sent forth by the power and gift of Christ, you can know that because it invites to do good and persuades to believe in Christ. Therefore, since the Book of Mormon does invite to do good and persuades to believe in Christ, then Joseph Smith may have felt completely justified in describing his translation method as being given by the gift and power of God. So that is about enough for part two of this podcast titled Lost in Translation. I hope that you're not lost in our discussion of the translation of the Book of Mormon. If you are, then hopefully by part three, we'll be able to get you back on track. In part three, I want to discuss some of the lesser known aspects and new insights regarding the loss of the 116 pages, as well as finish off my analysis of this paper written in the year 2000 by the two BYU professors that prompted this podcast in the first place. I have personally learned a lot while preparing and giving this podcast series on this subject that is at the very heart of Mormonism, which is the translation of the Book of Mormon, yea, verily, even the keystone of Mormonism. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.